The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. You can take your Bibles now and turn to Luke chapter 12. And as uh, Pastor Paul already mentioned, our order of worship is a little bit different today uh, because this is the day that we'll be uh, having baptisms. Uh, so the, the sermon is kind of put more in the middle of the worship service, rather toward the end of the worship service on those days. And uh, God's been good to us. We've had a lot of those days lately. We give him praise and, and thanks for that. So we're turning today to Luke chapter 12 uh, for our um, picking up with where we left off in our study of the gospel of Luke. And um, I'm going to be reading today uh, verses 22 to 34, a passage that should ring very familiar to many of us. And uh, this is where we've come today. And it's something that Jesus says very similar. We have very similar words recorded in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that Matthew has recorded for us. So follow with me now as I read. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you? Than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come before you now, we thank you for your holy word, and uh, we thank you that we know that it is indeed the word of God, and we pray that you would help us to hear it as such, and that you would grant us faith, spirit-given faith, to truly believe your word and application to ourselves. And Father, we pray for the work of the gospel around the world today. We pray for every church where... Christ is loved and the gospel is faithfully proclaimed that your spirit would rest upon it. We pray that your word would go forth with power throughout our land and throughout the world. And we continue to remember our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine this morning. We especially pray that you would have mercy upon them and protect them. And we pray that the church indeed would even prosper uh, under uh, the um, heaviness of this affliction. And Father, we pray that the war would cease, that peace would come. We pray that you would work out your purposes in the world through all of these things that happen, things that sometimes cause us stress and anxiety, and yet we know that you are working all things together for the glory of your name, for the advancement of the kingdom of your Son, and we pray that that would indeed be the case. And we pray now that you would meet with us by your Spirit as we consider your word together. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are hearing a lot, I think, in our country today about uh, the rising cost of living. And um, many of us, no doubt, are are feeling that in our budgets a little bit. High gas prices, uh, inflation, the threat of a recession. Um, There's a lot of anxiety in the world today about these things and about other things, wars and rumors of wars. Well, I think how timely in God's providence that as we return this morning to our study of the Gospel of Luke, that we've come to this passage in which Jesus addresses the subject of chronic worry about material and temporal things. 
It's a common problem that we can all struggle with, or let's be honest, we all do struggle with from time to time. Worries that press in upon you and consume you, perhaps producing sleepless nights, irritability, a haunting kind of sense of foreboding that that seems to be constantly hovering over you, worries about not having enough money, not being able to pay the bills, to keep up the mortgage payments, to pay the credit card off, to cover health care expenses, to provide for the needs of your children, or fears of not having enough to take care of yourself and your spouse as you grow old and are no longer able to work. How do we, how do we deal with these stresses and fears? Well, the internet is full of remedies. If we, uh, you know, be careful searching the internet. You know, when everybody, sometimes you see folks, every time they have an ache and pain, they go to the internet. By the time they're off the internet, they're convinced that they've got some terrible, rare disease. You know. But be careful about going, if you want to worry a lot, go to the internet and read all these things. But, but it's been pointed out uh, that there are stress-relieving pharmaceuticals, herbal elixirs, aromatherapies, breathing techniques self-help programs, and a thousand other treatment options if you struggle with these stresses and fears and worries. But what does Jesus tell us? What does God's Word say to us about this problem? Well, one of the key passages in the New Testament addressing this issue is the one that uh, we have come to this morning. But before we begin to look at it, I think it's very important that I remind you about the occasion and the context that led up to these words. Those of you who are with us may remember that Jesus has been outdoors teaching his disciples and also he's surrounded by a huge multitude of people who had gathered together. And he's been speaking to them about some very serious and important topics that have to do with the eternal destiny of the souls of men. But as we saw last time, our Lord's message was suddenly interrupted by someone in the crowd who had a question. He wanted some free legal help. Verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with us. So so here's Jesus the greatest of all preachers, the very Son of God, speaking about extremely important, weighty, eternal heaven and hell issues. And all this man has on his mind is this dispute between him and his brother over their inheritance. His question has absolutely nothing to do with what Jesus has been teaching or what he's been talking about. The interruption was untimely, uh, to say the least. And it was revealing. It revealed that in the midst of sitting under the very preaching of Christ himself, this man's heart was entirely preoccupied with anxieties and fears about the things of earth. He could think of only one thing, this inheritance dispute between him and his brother. Well, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus kind of quickly dismissed this man's request, who made me a judge over you in these matters, and then he turns to the multitude using this question as an occasion to say to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. And at this point, Jesus tells a parable, the parable of the rich fool, which we opened up last time in verses 16 to 21. He tells about a rich man who is very successful. His ground brought forth plentifully, and he had a bumper crop, so he considered the question of what he should do with all of this surplus, abundance, since he didn't have large enough barns to store it all in. And and this is what he decided to do. He, He decided to tear down his barns and to build bigger ones. Then he could store up all his crops and goods and say to his soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But he was in for a rude awakening. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you then whose will those things be which you have provided? And then Jesus made this application, verse 21. So is he, that is such a fool also is he, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this is the rich fool. Now, our Lord's disciples, having listened to this parable, might easily have thought to themselves, wow, That was a powerful parable. 
but at least it doesn't apply to us. Because few, if any of us, are rich like the men uh, the man in the story. And perhaps some of you here today, when we looked at that parable last week and last time, you might have thought to yourselves, well, that's not me. I don't have that problem because I'm, I'm not rich like the man in that story. Well, I think Jesus realized that we might be thinking that way, and that leads to the passage we come to today. We read in verse 23, then, don't miss the connections here, then, that is immediately after telling this parable, Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, therefore, that is in light of what I've just been telling you, in light of what you've just seen and what I've just said, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on, and so on. Now, do you see that there's a connection being made here between what Jesus said in verses 15 to 21, the parable of the rich fool, and what he's saying now in verses 22 to 34? Do not worry about your life. And this tells us that he's not dealing with a completely different problem here. He's simply addressing different, uh, uh, different manifestations of the same problem. You remember how this all begins with the warning in verse 15? Beware of covetousness. Well, you see, the covetousness that Jesus addresses not only shows itself in greed and in trusting in what I do have, it can also show itself in chronic anxiety and fear over what I don't have or what I think I must have or what I fear I don't have enough of. Either way... The heart is preoccupied with money and material and temporal things rather than seeking first the kingdom of God. You see, this matter of chronic worry is a lot more serious than perhaps some of us think. One of the things that our our fears will do, if we really think hard about them and we trace them down to their causes and their roots, is they tell us things about ourselves. And, they, and, and what they tell us may not be very pleasant. It can be very humbling. Fear often reveals what's really important to us. What we feel we must have in order to be happy and secure. And, and in that way, our fears may reveal idols that we are tolerating in our hearts. What is it that we're really looking to and trusting in? for security and happiness and well-being in life. If the thing we really look to and trust in is money or the things that money can buy, then what will we, what, what will we, will we be constantly afraid of? Well, if we have money, like the rich man in the parable, we'll be tormented by the fear of losing it. So we'll tend to hoard it up and to be greedy and to be stingy with the things that God has blessed us with. If we don't have a lot of money will tend to be tormented by the fear of our needs not being met. But you see, you see here that underneath it all, it's still the same problem. The problem of, it's really the problem of idolatry. The problem is that of looking to and trusting in money or the things that money can buy for security and happiness and well-being, rather than seeking first the things of the kingdom and trusting God to provide for us. This is the great danger. So this matter of overcoming chronic fear and anxiety is very important. Overcoming chronic fear and anxiety over material things is not just a matter of helping us to feel better, to be more well-adjusted human beings. No, it it does that, but it's much more important than that. There's much more at stake here. There's this danger of being distracted from the main business of life being distracted from Christ and from his word and from the things of God and the salvation of your soul and the cause of Christ and his kingdom by anxiety and worry and being consumed with the things of earth and time. Even though those things in and of themselves may be perfectly legitimate in their proper place and even essentials, but even when it comes to essentials, as one has put it, We are never to make life's essentials life's mission and purpose. You see, if we're consumed with anxiety over food and clothing and houses and lands and cars and all these things, temporal needs, 
we're really in the same position that the rich man was in. We are saying, in essence, yes, one's life does consist in the abundance or lack of abundance of the things he possesses. And so I trust we see that this matter of chronic worry is a very serious issue. And this is the concern of our Lord in this passage. He is teaching his disciples, his people, us, here today who are believers, that rather than being constantly stressed out and preoccupied and anxious about things, we must be seeking first the kingdom of God, verse 31. And that means first, that you must make it your chief concern to make certain that you have entered the kingdom. In other words, that you've been born again, that you become a glad subject of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're one of those who belong to him and will therefore be with him, rejoicing with him and serving him in the new heavens and the new earth when he returns. And then it means making the chief preoccupation of your life the service of Christ and the cause of the gospel in the world. Jesus says in verse 31 that this is to be first, the priority the chief concern of your life, and we are to trust the provision of our physical needs to God, our Heavenly Father. So now we're ready to open up the text. According to our Lord, how how do we, how do we as God's people keep from being consumed with worry about our physical and material needs? Now, if you don't ever struggle with that, then feel free to go home and go ahead and have your lunch today. But I doubt anyone would leave, right? Do you ever struggle with that? How do we overcome this? And how do we avoid our lives being consumed with worry about these things? Well, let's look at what Jesus tells us. First of all, he tells us that you've got to think and to think biblically. You've got to think and to think biblically. Or as another has put it, commenting on this, Jesus tells us that you've got to get your thinking straight, as Dale Ralph Davis puts it. Get your thinking straight. Not just feel and let our feelings overwhelm us and control us. No, he says you need to stop, you need to get hold of yourself, and begin to think. You need to carefully consider some things from a biblical perspective and preach them to yourself. Jesus is... I want you to see, Jesus is going to reason with us in this passage. He gives us several arguments and considerations that require us to think. Let's look at them. First of all, he says, consider what God has already given to you. Look at verses 22 to 23. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. So here's the argument here. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. What is Jesus saying here? Well, well, I believe what we have here is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Jesus is saying, in effect, listen, you have life and you have a body. If God has given you that, the greater, will he not give you the lesser? Will he not not give what is necessary to sustain that life and to cover the body? Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. You see, Jesus is seeking to get us to think about this, to reason these things out in a biblical manner and from a Christian worldview. Take this life of yours that you keep worrying about. How did you get it? Where did it come from? Did Did life come to you by worrying and fretting? And being preoccupied with trying to get it? No, your life is a gift from God. Man does not create or acquire life. We don't give being to ourselves. Not one of us decided uh, beforehand to come into this world. And not one of us came into this world because we worried about it beforehand. The very fact that we exist is entirely because of God. Now Jesus says, which is greater? Which is more difficult? Which is more important? Life or food? Certainly, life is greater. Well, if God has given you life, the gift of life, do you think he's then going to fail to give you what's necessary to sustain that life for as long as he has purposed for it to continue? That's the first argument, very basic argument. But then secondly, still under this general idea of getting our thinking straight. Secondly, he says, consider God's care of other creatures which are much less valuable than you are. 
Notice the second argument Jesus uses. First, he, has, he uses an illustration, and then he asks a question based on the illustration. So first of all, the, the illustration, verse 24a. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barn, and God feeds them. Now, Jesus says again, he's wanting us to think. I want you to consider the ravens. What do these birds do? How are their lives sustained? Now, by the way, let me just say this. Birds are not idle creatures, okay? They don't just sit on a branch and open their mouths and worms fall out of the sky into their mouths and down their throats. No, they seek out their food. They diligently hunt for it. They find it and they eat. So birds are not idle. Though there is, of course, a great a great deal of difference between the way the life of birds is sustained and the way the life of men is sustained. Uh, birds are given their food in the God-appointed bird way of seeking it out each day, and as they do that, their food is provided for them. In the case of man, there's a certain process involved. He sows, he reaps, he gathers into barns, he plans, he labors at his job, he, he gets his paycheck, he exercises forethought, he purchases what he needs, and so on. This is man's way, and it's the right way. This is the way God has appointed for them. So Jesus is not condemning the practice of men working for their needs. The Bible teaches us that we are to do that. He's not talking about just sitting down and doing nothing and waiting for our bread to arrive miraculously in the morning. That's not the point of the illustration. He simply points out to us that birds, even though they have no way of providing for themselves in the sense of preparing and producing food for themselves, yet the birds don't starve. Normally, birds don't starve. Why? Because God provides for them. The worms and insects they need are all provided by God. He looks after them, and he takes care of them. So this is the illustration. But then Jesus drives home the point of the illustration with a question. He says, of how much more value are you than birds? His point is, you are much more valuable. You are much more important in the eyes of God than birds. And the God who takes such good care of birds will most certainly take even better care of those human beings that he has created in his own image and in sovereign electing love has redeemed by the blood of his son and adopted as his own dear children. That's the argument. If your heavenly father provides for birds, he's not about to neglect to provide for the needs of his own children. Remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that if a man provides not for his own, those of his own household, that he's worse than an infidel. Well, do you think God is worse than an infidel? Do you think God's not going to provide for his own household? Do you think our Heavenly Father's not going to provide for his children? This is the argument. He provides for the birds. He's certainly going to provide for his own children. Thirdly, still under this heading of getting our thinking straight, Jesus says, thirdly, consider how useless worry is. Verses 25 to 26. And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why, you're, why are you anxious for the rest? Now, you know, actually, Jesus is saying something a bit different than what he might appear to be saying in this English translation. This word translated stature is a word that can either refer to height or age. It's used sometimes with reference to one or the other. And context has to determine which is being referred to. Well, I, I think it's very clear here that it should be translated age, as you'll find in some versions. Do you know how long a cubit is? A cubit's about, yeah, it's about from your elbow to the tip of your finger. It's about 18 inches a cubit. Well, clearly Jesus is illustrating here that worry is useless because it can't change anything even the least bit. But, you know, the idea of adding 18 inches to your height, I mean, that'd be quite a major change. I mean, you'd be ready maybe to play pro basketball or something if, if you could add 18 inches to your height. You see, what Jesus is speaking of here is age. He's speaking of lifespan. And he uses the word cubit, which is a term of linear measurement, it's a, as a figure of speech. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his lifespan? 
He's comparing our life to a course that has to be run. And when you think about your lifespan, adding a cubit, adding 18 inches to the course is not very much at all. And so the question is this, which of you by worry and fretting can add even the smallest span of time to the length of your life in this world when the God of heaven has determined that the time for you to depart this world has come? And if you can't even do that, why do you worry about the rest of your life? He says, in effect, face this question. Think about it. Realize that worry is absolutely useless. It doesn't accomplish anything. Uh, the old preacher Vance Havner, uh, Lillis, uh, bought me a book of, uh, or brought me a book of Vance Havner's quotes because I've quoted him from time to time. And he was, uh, he was uh, just, I think it was last week, Lillis uh, gave me the book. But he was an old preacher in North Carolina who was known for all of his one-liners. And Vance Havner once said this, <clears throat> Worry is like a rocking chair. It will give you something to do, but you won't get anywhere. It's a complete waste of time and energy, and it leads to a wasted life. And really, that's what Jesus is saying here. It's a waste of time. And then fourthly, Jesus says, consider the quality, okay? The quality, he's still trying to get us to think. Consider the quality of God's provision for even the transient passing elements of his creation. Now, this fourth consideration has three parts to it. We have an illustration, verse 27, a question, verse 28a, and an exclamation, verse 28b. So look, first of all, at the illustration Jesus uses. Consider the lilies. You see how he's, trying to get, he's telling us to think. Consider the lilies. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Again, as in verse 24, Jesus calls us to observe a fact of nature. Consider the lilies. Think about this. Meditate on this. Consider how they grow. They, they neither toil nor spin, yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. The glory of Solomon, by the way, was proverbial among the Jews. Solomon, in their minds, was the epitome of majesty. You can read about it in the Old Testament. His marvelous clothing, his palaces of cedar wood with their furniture overlaid with gold and decorated with precious stones. And yet all of that, Jesus says, pales into insignificance when compared with one of the lilies of the field. There's a certain quality in the flowers, in their form and design and texture, in their coloring. That man, with all of his efforts and ingenuity, can never equal or duplicate. As the poem puts it, to me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. And so as we look at the flowers, we see the glory of God. We see his handiwork, that little flower which is but a part of the grass, the herbage of the field, and is only there for a little time, and which in many cases may never be seen by any human being during the whole brief time of its existence on earth. That little flower is nevertheless beautifully and wonderfully clothed by God. God's generous. You know, I think sometimes we read a passage like this and we think, well, yeah, God will provide for me. You know, I can wear a burlap sack to cover me and live under a, a rock and eat uh, grub worms. Jesus is saying, I'm not saying that may not happen to us, but Jesus is saying, you consider the quality of God's provision for even the tra these, these transient creatures, transient meaning passing, passing things of God's creation. Secondly, he presses a question based on the illustration, verse 28. A, if then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? So here's the argument. The grass, or it could be translated the herbage of the field, which includes the wildflowers, is transient and passing. It's only here for a very brief time. In ancient times, they used to cut it and use it as fuel to bake bread. So it's here for a short time, then it's burned, and that's the end of it. I mean... Why does God even bother uh, to clothe them in such beauty? And they're only here for a short time. Some, think about 
the flowers that are out there in the world today and all of their beauty that no human being will ever actually even lay their eyes on. Why does God even bother? Now, if your Heavenly Father so wonderfully clothes and adorns something as passing and as transient as the grass of the field, Jesus says, how much more will he clothe you? his own children, you who are not passing and transient, you who are not merely a creature of time. You have a never-dying soul that will live on for all eternity, and even your body will be resurrected at the last day. You not only have a natural and transient dignity like the flowers, but much more than that, you have an eternal existence beyond death in the grave. And when you realize that truth about yourself, And when you realize and think about the special relationship that you have with God as a Christian, you belong to him in a special way as as his very own child. And when you think about that, that, how could we ever be so foolish as to worry that the God who has made me, the God who has redeemed me by the blood of his Son, and has destined me for eternal life and glory, how could we ever be so foolish as to worry that he's going to neglect to take care of my needs. If he so clothes even the transient wildflowers of the field, will he not clothe you? Well, this is why our Lord, after this this, uh, illustration in question, follows thirdly with an exclamation. O you of little faith, you of little faith, You who have such little confidence in your heavenly Father. Now, what does this tell us? And here's an important application. What does this tell us is one of the main causes of our problems with fear and anxiety about material needs. And of the idolatry of of focusing upon those things for our well-being and happiness and security. What's one of the main causes? I would say the main cause. Well, this tells us that the main cause is unbelief. Unbelief. You have this sneaking suspicion that God's not really there watching over you or that he's not really concerned about you, that he can't really be trusted to take care of his own children. Now, the unconverted are under the power of reigning unbelief, but even with God's children, there are degrees of remaining unbelief that still rise up and vex us, and sometimes our faith can be so small. Oh, you have little faith. It's, it's the littleness and smallness of our faith that gets us into trouble when it comes to this. And now, what is one of the characteristics of little faith? Well, do we see here? Don't we see here in the way that Jesus is reasoning with us that one of the things little faith often fails to do is to think to think Jesus is challenging us to think and to think biblically he's asking us questions that are designed to provoke serious thought because you see this is one of the main problems with little faith Mr. or Mrs. Little Faith doesn't think she feels but she doesn't think Our Lord is telling you, my friend, that you must think. You must put your faith to work and reason these things out in a biblical manner, and you must preach them to yourself. And I've said this so many times that that's so important in living the Christian life in every area of the Christian life. Knowing God's word, knowing God's truth, turning it upon ourselves and preaching it to ourselves in our circumstances and in our situation. Life comes to us at times with a club in its hands and it strikes us on the head. And we become dazed and we feel defeated and we become consumed with anxiety because we don't stop to think and to preach truth to ourselves. We allow ourselves to be controlled by our feelings and our circumstances. But our Lord's overall lesson is that instead we must bring our feelings under the control of biblical thought and reasoning. By the way, that's why you need to be in the Word every day. That's why you need to be in prayer every day. That's why you need to be thinking about 
God's promises and God's truth and applying them to yourself every day. You must preach to yourself and work these things out. We must put faith to work and fight back against anxiety. Don't lay down and let it run over you and push you around. Push back and overcome it with truth. We must never think of faith as something that's purely a mystical thing. You just kind of sit down and, and uh, suddenly you're sitting there and something comes over you and everything is well and all the anxiety has gone away. No, that's not Christian faith. Christian faith is a thinking faith. So Jesus tells us to consider, to think. The first thing you must do is, is start thinking and think biblically. But then he tells us secondly... And now these others are not going to be as involved and as long as the, the first one. But he tells us, secondly, that you must be ashamed to act like a heathen. Be ashamed to act like a heathen. I think that's a good way of summarizing what Jesus says next. In verse 29, he simply reiterates the essence of what he's been saying thus far. Um, and do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. And then he gives us another reason why those who belong to Christ must not give way to chronic worry over things. Verse 34, all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your father knows that you need these things. In other words, these are the things the Gentiles, worldlings, the people of this world set their hearts upon. And are preoccupied with worry and anxiety and preoccupation with and striving after the things of this earth. That's what marks the nations. He's speaking of of the heathen. He's speaking of pagans. Whether it be pagans out in the jungle somewhere or pagans in prosperous America. Those who do not know God. And he's telling us very simply that if your mind is preoccupied with fear and worry about material things, you're acting like a heathen. That's what he's saying. And you should be ashamed of yourself for that. That's what he's telling us. You should be embarrassed. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. This is what they live for. This is what dominates their lives and consumes their lives. Food, drink, clothes, houses, cars, retirement funds. That's all they have. It's all they have. That's their whole purpose in life. They have nothing else to live for. But you are God's children. You live for the kingdom of God. You have a higher purpose in life. And seeking the kingdom of God, God has promised that whatever earthly things you need, he knows you need them, and he's promised that they will be added to you. So don't act like a heathen. You see, there's a certain dignity that we ought to have as God's people. It's beneath our dignity to act that way as children of God. So how do we keep from being characterized by chronic worry and anxiety about our physical and material needs. First, Jesus says, get your thinking straight. Secondly, be ashamed to act like a heathen. And then thirdly, he says, remember your relationship to God. Remember your relationship to God. After speaking about what characterizes the nations of the world, Jesus follows by saying, and your father knows that you need these things. He draws our attention to at least two things in this statement. First, he reminds us of our special relationship to God and his relationship to us as Christians. He reminds us that God is our father. He is a father to us. And really, he's been doing this all along. Here he actually refers to God as our father. He is your father. My dear brother or sister, if you're a Christian, God is a father to you. And he wants you to think of him in that way. He wants you to know that and to understand that. He teaches us to pray to him, our Father, who art in heaven. And what kind of Father is God? Well, Jesus has been laboring to show us. He's not a neglectful Father. He doesn't neglect his children. He's a Father who cares for his children. And he's a Father who has promised to provide for his children everything that they truly need. Not everything we may want, but what we need and what is best for us. And usually much more than we could even imagine far beyond what is just our bare necessities. Most of us, when we go home today and we sit down at the table, we're not going to be drinking bread and water. We're not going to be drinking bread at all. We're not going to be be drinking water and eating bread, right? 
He provides for us, and he often provides. He doesn't always, but he often provides beyond what we really need. He's not stingy. He's a father who has promised to provide for his children, not everything we may want, but he's not a miser in his dealings with his children. Notice what Jesus says in verse 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Notice he tells that God gives us the kingdom, the entire kingdom of God. And notice he doesn't sell the kingdom. We don't have to earn salvation or deserve salvation. God freely gives it to us in Jesus Christ. Now, we're told to seek the kingdom in verse 31, but Jesus wants us to understand that this doesn't mean that God is somehow reluctant to give it to us. He gives it to us as a free gift. God freely gives Christ and salvation and all of the blessings of the kingdom as a free gift to those who truly desire it and who seek it from him by faith in Jesus Christ. He freely gives the kingdom to his children. And then notice Jesus says that it is his good pleasure to do so. It pleases him to do so. He's not reluctant or grudging when it comes to giving us salvation. It makes him glad to do it. Do you want to know something that makes God really happy, if I might say it that way? Causes God to rejoice? Well, Jesus tells us God finds great pleasure in giving to us, in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. And all that means and all of the blessings of salvation and eternal life that come with it. Now, if God is our Father, and that's the kind of Father He is, and He takes great pleasure in freely giving us the kingdom, what do we have to fear? What do we have to worry about? Think about this. If you're a Christian, think about the kind of father that God is to you. He is a father who set his love upon you and determined to adopt you as his child way back before the foundation of the world in eternity. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, according as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in love, having predestined us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. We were children of wrath by nature, even as others. And yet, though he saw us filthy and defiled with sin and deserving of hell, he determined to wash us and to adopt us as his very own sons and daughters. Furthermore, God is a father who paid an infinite price to adopt us as his children. When men adopt children into their families, it takes time, it takes study, paperwork, it may cost a lot of money, but when God determined to adopt, it cost an infinitely greater price. Divine wisdom was put to work, as it were, to devise a way in which the heirs of wrath could become the heirs of the promise. How could sinners who were breakers of God's law and enemies of God by nature and who were deserving of eternal hell, how could they ever be forgiven righteously? And be made his children. How could God ever bring sinners to himself in love without defiling his holy character? How could divine justice that must punish sin ever be satisfied without destroying the sinner? Without plunging the sinner into the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone for all eternity? Well, a way was devised for this to happen, but it wasn't an easy way. It wasn't a cheap way. As another has put it, when God came to sign the legal document declaring us to be his own precious children, he signed it with the blood of his only begotten son. There is nothing more dear to him than his son. He is the darling of the father's heart. And yet for our sake, because of his great love by which he loved us, he poured out his holy wrath upon Jesus in our place that we might become his adopted sons and daughters. And if God gave his son for us, if he gave the greatest gift that could ever be given, do you think there's anything else that you will ever truly need that he will keep from you? Perish the thought. Having given the best, he will give you everything else you need to live and to serve him in this world for as long as he has purposed for you to be here and all you need to bring you safely all the way to heaven. This is the very argument that Paul uses in Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, 
How shall he not with him? He's already given us the greatest gift, his son. He spared him not for us. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What a wonderful father God is to his children. And Jesus says, remember, your father knows. Your father knows that you need these things. He points to the reality of God's relationship to us as a father. But he also points to the omniscience of our father. This one who so loves you, dear Christian, knows that you have need of these things. He says, oh, you don't need these. He knows we need. There's things we need, right? To live in this world. He knows it. He knows all about you. And as Jesus said up in verse 7 of this chapter, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. We must always remember that we're never in a situation in which we are outside of God's knowledge and care. He knows your situation even better than you know it yourself. What a wonderful, blessed truth. Your Father knows you have need of these things. He knows. He understands your situation. You'll never be anywhere that He does not see you. There will never be anything in the depths of your heart, in the innermost recesses of your being, but that your heavenly Father knows all about it. And that truth is meant to cause us to live each day in the comfort and undoubted assurance of his fatherly care for us. He knows the needs that you have, the needs that tend to trump, trouble you and tempt you to worry. He knows every pang of the heart, every internal as well as external need. And from this reality, our Lord draws this lesson that you need never be anxious and fearful. You must never be worried and distracted from the one great business of life because of your earthly necessities. For your Father is with you. You're not alone. And he's very much aware of every need you have. Dear brothers and sisters, if we could but grasp that simple truth and believe it as we should, that one truth alone would cause all chronic anxiety and fear about our temporal circumstances and needs to fly away. Never allow yourself for even one moment to think that you're left to yourself. Because you're not. The Heavenly Father knows and he sees and he'll take care of you as you trust in him. He saw Jacob running from the hatred of his brother, out in the middle of nowhere, sleeping on a rock for his pillow. He was all alone, but God saw him. And God was there. And God took care of him. He saw Joseph, sold into slavery by the cruelty of his brothers, lied about by Potiphar's wife and cast into prison, treated unjustly in all of these ways, but God was there. God saw him. God knew his situation, and he took care of him. He saw Ruth and Naomi, two destitute widows. Ruth with little prospect of any kind of life other than a life of singleness or hardship, poverty, taking care of her elderly mother. But they were not alone. God was there. I love that that verse in Ruth, she just happened to light upon Boaz's field. It's tongue-in-cheek, right? It wasn't just happenstance. It was the providence of God. God took care of her. God was there. He took care of Paul and Silas, chained in a Philippian jail. Their heavenly father knew about it. He took care of them. Whatever our circumstances are, you and I must learn to say what Jesus said under the very shadow of the cross when even his friends forsook him. He said, the hour is coming, yes, and is now come that you will be scattered and leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. And that's God's promise to everyone who is in Christ. So dear brothers and sisters, Hebrews 13, 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. And here's the reason it gives. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, may these simple and yet powerful arguments of our Lord be enough to convince every person here this morning that if you abandon yourself to Christ in faith and seek first the kingdom of God, you need never worry about the provision of your earthly needs. There's no circumstance, there's no condition in this life that should lead a child of God to be consumed with worry. And we should repent, shouldn't we? 
where we have been and when we have been and push back against it with the truth of God's word. And for those of you who are still the slaves of things, the bond slaves of mammon, living a life of fear and anxiety because money and temporal things and material things are your gods. It's what you're living for. Fear of losing what you have. Fear of not having enough. Living a life totally preoccupied with the things of this world. My friend, there is more to life than food and clothing and cars and houses and lands, all of which will perish in the end. There is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. God offers to you salvation from all of your sins and a new life and a greater purpose for living. He offers you the kingdom and all the blessings of salvation and eternal life, and they are all found in Jesus Christ, and God sincerely extends to you Jesus Christ and all the salvation that is in him as a free gift to be received by self-abandoning faith in him. He is willing to freely give it. It is the Father's delight his good pleasure to give the kingdom to those who truly ask him for it and seek it through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful God. What a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian. Well, may God bless his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you this morning for this portion of your word. And Lord, we are convicted of our little faith and we pray you would have mercy upon us and strengthen our faith help us lord not to cave in to these things but to push back with truth to believe your word not to consider you as a father who neglects his children for we know this is not the case and lord i pray that you would help us to practice these things so that we would not act like the heathen but we would live with the dignity that we ought to live in our attitudes and reactions and persons as those who are the very sons and daughters of the God of heaven. And Father, we pray for those who are lost that are here this morning. We pray you would have mercy upon them and save them that they might enter the kingdom by the new birth and through faith in your son. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.